a good teacher. He really seems to care about what I have no idea. Welcome back to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, Tulane Law Professor and Co-Director of the Tulane Center for Sport. On this episode, we tackle the latest developments in the long and winding road to potential employee status for college athletes, the oral arguments in the Johnson versus NCAA case with the two lead lawyers for the plaintiffs in that case, Paul McDonald and Mike Willeman. We also take a look at the recent decision in Brian Flores's racial discrimination lawsuit against the NFL with Brian Flores's lawyer, also Mike Willen. Here we go. Before I get to my guests, I want to give some quick background on the two cases we're going to discuss. The first is Johnson versus NCAA, one of the existential threats facing the NCAA. Well, existential may be too strong, but it's one of the many legal threats currently facing college sports. This case was brought by a former Villanova football player and other college athletes arguing that college athletes should be classified as employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which would require the schools to pay them minimum wage and overtime pay, among other things. A similar claim had been rejected by other courts in the past, and the NCAA moved to dismiss this case, arguing that as a matter of law, college athletes are not employees under the FLSA because they're students. The district court judge denied the motion to dismiss, and the NCAA appealed it up to the Third Circuit, which heard oral arguments in the case in February. If the NCAA wins in front of the Third Circuit, which seems pretty unlikely based on how hostile the judges were to the NCAA's arguments, but if the NCAA wins, the case is over. If they lose, they might appeal the decision to the Supreme Court, or it would head back to the district court to proceed towards discovery and potentially a trial. The second case we're discussing is the lawsuit brought by Brian Flores and joined by other NFL coaches against the NFL for racial discrimination. The NFL moved to have the cases heard in arbitration, potentially with Roger Goodell as the arbitrator, instead of federal court. And the court, just recently, ruled that some of the claims have to be arbitrated, while others can proceed in federal court. I talk with the lawyers directly involved in both of these cases about what these latest developments mean. Now, on to the interviews with Paul McDonald and Mike Williman. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike and Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, so let's get right into it. A lot to talk about. We're going to start with the Johnson versus NCAA case. And we just heard the oral argument in front of the Third Circuit. Mike, you did the argument. And I'd like to, before we dig into the specifics about the argument, just give your overall impressions of how things went versus maybe how you were expecting them to go. Because if you read the media reports, and I listened to the arguments live, it's always hard to tell because they're not keeping score during the arguments. It's like a boxing match. And we can all have our predictions about how each round went and your side seemed to land more punches, but there's no scoreboard up there yet. But how are you both feeling coming out of the argument? Look, we feel very well about the way that the argument went. We think 
that the judges were extremely prepared for all the legal issues that were going to be raised, had a good grasp on the allegations in the complaint, and a really superior grasp on all the various case law that's come out that involves the issues that were involved in the appeal. And really, I think we feel good about the fact that they recognized, I think, two things. One is that they seem to have recognized that perhaps this case is premature for appellate review. This is a case that we survived a motion to dismiss, but discovery hasn't occurred yet. And the allegations in the complaint at this stage are presumed to be true. And the judges seem a bit perplexed as to what to do with the case as it is currently procedurally postured. And then on the merits as well, there were comments by the judges that were made and questions that were asked that seemed to indicate not necessarily that we will assuredly prevail on the merits of the overall case, but that there are serious issues to be decided in this case, that there is discovery that is warranted before those issues that can be decided, and that the NCAA isn't going to hopefully, when this opinion comes out, get a free pass at the motion to dismiss stage. So I'll leave it to Paul, but those were my overall impressions. And I agree with Mike. I think that the main thing was, this was a very limited appeal, uh, interlocutory. So it, it was there was no record. I think that to some extent, the judges maybe assumed there would be. And even the fact that we went on longer than what was originally scheduled for the for the oral argument, and even the majority of the questions asked were questions that the judges recognized were ones that really we need fact discovery to to address. So there's a limited question of whether or not the standard for a motion to dismiss for student athletes as it should be the same as it is for everyone else except for prisoners. And it seemed that the judges understood that even from the standpoint of understanding that that Van Skyke v. Peters, the case that Berger and Dawson had relied upon was, to, as Judge McKee called it, ridiculous. So I think it agreed with Mike. I think on balance, it went very well for us in terms of their understanding of where the case is procedurally. And then even projecting forward to say that at this stage, even given what's in the complaint, which, by the way, I think we should say this if people haven't read the complaint, it's not just they're really they're allegations, but they're allegations that are based primarily on three things that are indisputable. The federal guidelines for work study, which can't be disputed, the NCAA's admissions, limited admissions as they were, but still admissions in the prior case, Libras VNCA, which can't be disputed, and material from the NCAA various schools' own documents and websites that are published. So based upon the things that we already have, even before going through discovery, I think the judges understood that these student athletes are more controlled than other kids on campus and have more restrictions on their academic pursuits than other kids on campus. And the comparison of those kids who are already, who we, who we know are already employees in work study, I think bears favorably for the future of the case. So in terms of the, both the procedural posture and then the underlying merits of the case, you both mentioned that this is a relatively narrow question, whether they failed to, whether you failed to state a claim in your complaint. And all three judges appeared to be skeptical of the idea, particularly when the operative question, at least in part, is the amount of control exercised over the athletes. And you need some factual record to know what amount of control is exerted over these athletes and what the economic reality is. Let's assume though, and I don't think we've heard anything, but if the NCAA decides to appeal this decision and they've the argument is that this is now there is a circuit split with the seventh and the ninth and the third, is this a type of case the court would the Supreme Court would hear? on this limited 
grounds or, or is it think it's more likely if it does go up to the Supreme Court, it's after things go back to Judge Padova and then we have a factual record and then it's a more likely Supreme Court case? It's probably the latter. Obviously, the Supreme Court is entitled to hear whatever cases it decides to hear. There would be arguably, probably not arguably, there would be a circuit split on the specific legal issue of whether or not the NCAA is essentially immune to the ordinary principles that underlie the FLSA. I suppose the Supreme Court could take that up. But if you look at the cases that the Supreme Court tends to take up generally and specifically with respect to challenges to the NCAA's regime of compensation and antitrust issues and so on and so forth, including the most recent decision out of the Supreme Court, the Alston case, those are generally heard by the Supreme Court following a full review of the merits decision decisions ultimately that the Supreme Court would have to decide because at the end of the day, we still need to litigate this case and prevail in order for there to be, I think, a real controversy for the Supreme Court to, to wrap its head around. And of course, I agree with Mike. You can consider this, the Supreme Court rarely hears cases that are about motions to dismiss. Obviously, the most famous one being Iqbal in, 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 in recent memory that I can think I can, that I recall. But admittedly, I'm not a Supreme Court follower. Or maybe something I'm going to fact check you really hard after this. <laughs> but, but Iqbal is the one that obviously when it came out was the one that people talked about the most. But and keep in mind, again, even if the, if the NCAA were to consider appealing this, it would be really on the narrow question of whether or not the principle that's outlined against Kaki V. Peters, which on its terms is limited to prison labor under the 13th Amendment slavery exception. If somehow a private organization that's not involved in prison work can argue that it gets to make a rule that should get the same level of deference. I, I don't know if the NCAA would even want to be seen as doing that in terms of seeking cert on that particular question. Yeah. So let's come back to the Van Skyke issue in a second. But so do you have any insight into whether the NCAA does plan to appeal? Are there many discussions about that to file a cert petition? There haven't been any discussions. There haven't. The interlocutory appeal itself is a pretty unusual move. And so I suppose you you could glean from that that perhaps there'd be a greater chance of attempted appeal than might exist in the ordinary case. But I have no way of saying one way or another what their intentions are. And I think it would be, as I said before, pretty unlikely that the Supreme Court would take this up at this time. And they probably know that. I agree with Mike. They probably know that. But I think one thing we have to keep in mind here, even from the standpoint, I know we're going to talk about Vince Skyke a little bit in a minute. When you consider what the NCAA has been arguing, it's, I think, a reasonable conclusion that they are concerned about the results of a test being applied. And so I think the real question as to whether or not they try to file a cert petition is how is how much that concern has manifested itself. Again, obviously, I maybe have a biased opinion here since I'm plaintiff's counsel, but it's pretty clear to me that when you apply a test, especially when you compare it to the other students on campus who we know are employees, the student athletes meet the test. And we have some indication, although again, without a record, from comments that judges have made so far in our case, suggesting that at least based upon the allegations and the complaint, there, there seems to be enough for student athletes to meet that bar. I think the NCAA knows that. I think they've always known it. And I think that's the reason why they have sought so hard to have this idea that amateurism somehow excludes them from a normal test. I don't think that they would have much success if they took this to the Supreme Court. 
either in terms of getting it approved on a cert petition or, or ultimately. But I would not be surprised, given I think their level of concern about what the test will show and what discovery will show. That's the other thing we haven't really talked about yet, that they may try that as some sort of a Hail Mary. So on discovery, and then let's take the, the opposite end, though, if they're if they knock on the Supreme Court and this ends up back with Judge Padova and it proceeds to discovery and then potentially to a trial, the obviously in every case, there's the thought of settlement in most cases do settle. Is there a settlement path here that you possibly see, whether it's from your perspective, from the plaintiff side, or from the NCAA's perspective? Certainly from our perspective, we believe we are going to prevail, right? And at the end of the day, in any case where the expectation is that the plaintiff is going to prevail, and that's our expectation here, there should be a pathway to having meaningful settlement discussions, because obviously the risk to the NCAA here is pretty substantial. And we outlined this fact a few times in our briefing and also in connection with our oral arguments to the Third Circuit. But the NCAA can resolve this case, pay the student-athletes of the past for the time spent that they've worked for their institutions as student-athletes, and change some of the rules such that a test wouldn't result in student-athletes being found to be employees, right? The NCAA has complete control over its control over the student athletes. And to date, it's exercised it pretty in a pretty draconian way. But if it loosens some of those restrictions, then there's a, certainly a possibility that the NCAA could resolve this case and move forward with a different set of regulations that don't require it to pay employees the minimum wage. And then the alternative is to just pay them the minimum wage if you're going to exert this amount of control over these student athletes and comply with the FLSA and comply with the law. And comply not only with the FLSA, but the NLRA and the other laws that are being used to challenge the NCAA's exertion of control over student-athletes. So there is a pathway to settlement. Obviously, it's one that would be costly for the NCAA. And so perhaps that's not something that they desire to do. I think the bigger issue, though, obviously, other than cost, is really that the NCAA seems hell-bent on maintaining this facade of amateurism and hell-bent on avoiding the implications of its actions and its conduct and the control that it exerts over student athletes. And whether or not from their perspective, this is a matter that I'll ever resolve. I can't say they're trying really hard to get Congress to bless what they're doing. They've been unsuccessful in that. And obviously just recently a member of Congress wrote to the incoming NCAA president to try to explain to him that their continued efforts to thwart the rights of student athletes should be ended. So who knows if they're going to continue to fight tooth and nail and eventually, we believe, lose this case. One thing I would say, though, is that I don't know if it's actually that expensive for them because we are, we're, our case is not the antitrust case that's seeking salaries of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Even Our case isn't even what you're looking at in, I think, one of the bills being debated in California that involves revenue sharing. I think there was one number I saw about $23,000 a year. That's not our case. And when you look at our case and we're talking about a minimum wage scale comparable to other kids on campus who are paid on a minimum wage scale, when you look at the number of hours that we're talking about, when we're talking about what a, maybe a five and a half, maybe six month playing and practice season, maybe a shorter off season, if you were just for the sake of conversation, for sake of doing kind of a 
on a napkin thing. And again, this is not based upon anything in the case. Is it just, if you said, for instance, I don't know, the kids work, the student athletes work, say 600 hours a year in terms of playing and practice and in the off season. Again, that's not a de- definitive number. I'm just saying that for the purpose of conversation. If you said that the minimum, the wage you're going to pay them was $10, that's $6,000 for an athlete for the year. In what world, when you're talking about pay, the Liberty head football coach now is paid $4 million a year. You know, in what world is $6,000 an athlete something that the schools can't afford? What they're doing right now is they're just simply taking the money they're making and giving it all to the adults or spending it all on facilities. And so anytime I hear someone suggest that it might be, quote unquote, expensive for them or hard for them to do, that's just, I find those arguments completely unavailing, given that they are paying the kids selling popcorn. And these kids we're talking about, in our case, is different than other cases. Our case is talking about something reasonable that allows for the parents of the student athletes to not have to send them spending money for the weekends that aren't covered by any scholarship. The NCAA, of course, has a couple of responses to that. One is their argument that this would not only apply to D1 athletes, but it would likely apply to D2 athletes. They've made the argument that it would apply to D3 athletes. I'm not sure how they make that argument with there's, when there's no athletic scholarship, so there's no expectation of compensation. But but I guess two questions on that well, on that first point they make, because they make some other points, which we'll talk about in a second. Do you think that they're right, that if the Villanova football players are employees under the FLSA, then the Division II football players are also employees? Because if that's the case, then it it may not cost any more than it would cost on the D1 level, but it's going to cost institutions that maybe don't spend quite as much on athletics money that that they're not spending their, they're not paying their coaches millions and millions of dollars. So where is the line drawn? I know this came up in oral arguments between, let's say, Division One versus Division Two, and you can bring in Division Three also, and then also the Division One full scholarship versus the equivalency sports versus the walk-ons. What's, where do you think the, your argument what do you think your argument covers among all those? Depends on the test, right? Doesn't it depend on the test and what the facts when they apply to a test? Yeah, I think that's right. The major, the ma- one of the major things that we're looking at is the degree of control, right? That's exerted over these athletes. And again, that's the problem of the NCAA's own making. And so from a purely legal perspective, if they're treating Division One, Division Two, II, Division Ten athletes like employees. They should pay them like employees the minimum wage. The degree of control over Division Three athletes really isn't comparable in a lot of ways to the degree of control over Division One and Division Two athletes. And part of the test, generally speaking, is the benefit that the institution realizes from the work of the laborers and. The NCAA could certainly, and I'm sure that they will, by the way, if we prevail in the Division One, I'm sure that they will make this argument for Division Two that the degree of benefit to the institutions is not as significant and therefore mitigates the claim that these Division Two athletes would be employees. But as Paul said, you need to apply the test to each specific category of individuals. We see no meaningful difference. There is no meaningful difference between scholarship athletes and non-scholarship athletes and what the NCAA likes to refer to erroneously as non-revenue generating sports versus revenue generating sports. Every, all of these athletic division one contests generate revenue. The issue is whether or not 
I guess the issue that they that they really mean to be arguing is whether or not each of these athletic endeavors is profitable. But there's a thousand ways to analyze profit that go beyond just simply the dollars and cents of what the, the gate, so to speak, and the TV revenues versus what you would pay student athletes and coaches and the like. And schools regularly advertise all sorts of nonprofit or I guess not profit generating sports for a variety of reasons, including to get alumni donations, include and when you look at like profit, are you looking at the pavilion that's called the Paul McDonald Squash Pavilion. That might not go into the profit that you see on the books, but that's a large donation that's being made by alumni to to facilitate the playing of these sports, right? They advertise these sports for cultural purposes to entice various students of various diverse backgrounds to attend their school, which provides to them a benefit. So there are various ways to look at it, but we don't believe that there's any meaningful difference between what the NCAA likes to refer to as profit sports versus nonprofit sports or scholarship sports versus non-scholarship sports. And the degree of control that's exerted over these students, we believe, is the primary factor that should be considered in determining their employment status. One, two other things real quick, though. One thing we have to keep in mind whenever we're talking about the degree of control or the other aspect, which is, I think, secondary, but still very important here, restrictions on academic pursuit, right? Even if you're talking about Divisions two or even Division three, we still have the comparison with the work-study students. In other words, you can make the statement that the Division three athlete is not as controlled as a Division one athlete. That's true. But maybe the proper comparison for Division three athlete is the Division three work-study students. Because at the end of the day, whatever athletic pursuit someone's involved in, to the extent it's under the NCAA rule books, which are as extensive, and to the extent that they are, they can't, for instance, schedule a class during practice, they have more restrictions upon place and more control and more restrictions placed upon them than their fellow students in the dining hall. And so I think the thing we have to keep in mind is that our argument about the student athletes being employees is not in, in kind of in some type of world where there aren't there, where there isn't a benchmark. There is a benchmark. And vis-a-vis that benchmark, I think there's an argument that could be made in whatever division that the comparison should be with the other students on campus who are employees in that division. That's first thing. Second thing is the compensation bargain argument, which I know that the NCAA has, harps on. I think something that shouldn't be lost is something that Judge McKee really talked about during the oral argument. And we've made this case, frankly, and we actually make it in the complaint. The first part of the complaint we talk about is the first criteria in the GLAT in the GLAT test, is that there really is no meaningful argument to be made about compensation bargain here, because literally, whether it's the NCAA, the NJCA, or the NAIA, every college-affiliated sports association has rules that say you cannot pay for play. So there is no bargain that any student-athlete can make. No student-athlete can go to any school right now and say, I'd like to bargain for a salary or for hourly wage. So in that environment, to then turn around and say, there's no compensation bargain, therefore you can't be an employee, is completely circular. That would be as if somebody said, okay, take another outside of this sports. If someone were hiring people for to work at a restaurant and just said, hey, I'm not going to pay you for janitorial work. And the person says, yeah, but I think I meet the criteria to be a janitor who gets paid under the FLSA. Because I refuse to pay, you can't pay. And so the compensation bargain argument, besides the fact the scholarships are irrelevant in our case, they may not be in NLRA cases or whatever, but they're irrelevant in our case. Compensation bargain argument is entirely circular and makes no sense in an environment where the putative employer employee 
has no ability to negotiate with the employer. And it, it also, it reminds me a little bit of the old Title IX arguments that schools made when they would try to claim that female athletes had their interests fully met because they just weren't interested in playing sports and courts held that's because you've discriminated against them for decades right, exactly. and told them that they can't play sports. So you can't say that because you told them they can't play sports. Now they don't want to play sports and therefore you've complied with the law. But the going back to the implications of the case and the idea that this would be a relatively small financial hit for the colleges in the NCAA, the other argument, one of the other, one of the other arguments the NCAA makes is that a decision that student athletes are employees would impose other costs on schools beyond paying them minimum wage, including overtime, whenever a student athlete works more than 40 hours per week, potential tax obligations, workers' comp, withholding of social security, matching amounts for Medicare taxes. And, and that, both- that last part's definitely not true because under, under the current work study guidelines, FICA is not taken out of any work-study student's paycheck. That's just, look, the bottom line is this. I don't mean to cut you off, but but again, the work-study comparison is so important here. Every time they tell you that something can't be done or shouldn't be done because it hasn't been done, it's not true. They have work-study programs. They've had them for decades. My dad was in work-study in the 1960s. Okay. So all we're talking about literally is folding the student-athletes into a system that's existed for decades. And of course, in, in divisions one and two, you have timesheets. So all you do literally is take the timesheet and put it into the exact same system that spits out a check for the kid working the game, selling popcorn. So all these things they talk about, keep in mind, the work study system has existed. And so if you're going to complain about it in terms of student athletes, then why haven't you complained about it in terms of all the other students? And just to add to that, because I think that's all obviously extremely valid, but the whole argument that we don't have to comply with the law because it would be too expensive for us to do is so absurd. There's not a company on the planet that could say, you know what, government this year, I don't feel like putting my workers comp or my unemployment or my social security contribution in my taxes this year because the company's had a down year. Or Government, sorry, but I'm not going to be able to pay this employee that I just required to work 60 hours this week overtime because we're just not doing that well this year. It's not a valid argument. The premise of the argument is invalid. The cost associated with employing someone is a cost that you have to pay if you employ someone. Otherwise, you don't employ them. Or better yet for the NCAA, you don't treat them like employees. You don't need, there's nothing that requires the NCAA to treat these individuals in a way that would require them to get paid under the law. And that's actually a benefit that other businesses can't say. You have a law firm, you can't tell a paralegal, just uh, loosen up their schedule a little bit, and then you don't have to pay them for when they're here. You got to pay someone who's doing work in most corporate environments. The NCAA doesn't have that problem. They can loosen up the restrictions. They can stop interfering with the academic development of their student athletes. They've already taken some steps. One huge one was was the fact that they had non-competes essentially in place when this case was filed. These are things that the NCAA can do to solve its own problem. But to say we're going to employ people but not pay them because it's too expensive is a completely invalid argument from jump, regardless of what the potential implications are from a cost perspective. And the non-compete you mentioned, partially the transfer restrictions and the loosening of those restrictions. And that, what you both just said, also answers their complaint, at least in part, that 
if we allow college athletes to be treated as employees or require them to be treated as employees, it's going to lead to cutting crew, field hockey, track and field, all these other sports that will be too expensive to maintain. And again, your part of your argument is one, you can do it in a way that they're not employees. And two, they're spending so much money on football and basketball. There's lots of ways to find money to spend on these other sports. But let me ask from a practical perspective, the argument that you've made is that tomorrow, if the NCAA wanted to, they could change the way they treat their college athletes so that they're no longer employees under FLSA. And given that there, there's debate about what tests to apply, if a test should apply at all, but given that the most of the tests that are out there, they're either multi-factor or they're a little bit amorphous, what what specifically do the, would they have to do to not be for the athletes not to be declared FLSA employees under FLSA? There's oh sorry, if you want to start pause five. No, I was gonna say what they could do is they could first of all you'd allow the kids, for instance, to to not have to go to practice if it interfered with classes. You could actually have a strict rule about how many hours the kids actually devote to their sport. We know the NCAA says they're supposed to be capped at 20 hours a week supervised, but we know from the NCAA's own studies that they do 32, 34, and up to 40 hours in terms of the non-voluntary, the voluntary things, which aren't voluntary, because if you don't do them, you're not going to get a chance to play. The reality of it is they could just decide to not make this a business. They've chosen to make it a business, right? It wasn't always a business. If you go back to the early days, interscholastic sports, when it was really just clubs, it wasn't a business. It wasn't controlled by full-time employees, a whole department. You didn't, you didn't have a situation where you were trying to get TV contracts. You didn't have a situation where the kids had to show up to practice all at the same time because you wouldn't be able to run the drills and do all the other things you want, where almost every kid has to major in communications. Why? Because communications is the only department at almost every school that actually tries to coordinate with the sports department as to when classes can be taken. They can choose not to make it a business. But the fact of the matter is, I don't care what it is, whether it's sports or any other business, if you are going to run a business for the purpose of making money, lots of it, and you are doing using the labor of people to do that, chances are they're going to be employees. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is you could talk about the impact that lesser degree of control or a greater emphasis on academics might have on the profitability of the business. And so I don't necessarily subscribe to the theory that you can't make money producing college athletics without having those athletes be employees, because there are the two major components to all the tests are the degree of control and with respect to academic related endeavors, the prominence of, or I guess the benefit, the academic benefit to the individual versus the benefit is to the institution. And so if they were to, again, as Paul was mentioning, not punish people if they're late for practice, not saying don't go to practice, but if you've got a class that you need to take for a major, let that person take that class or work with the majors at the institutions to try to ensure that there's flexibility with respect to scheduling on classes and not have the amount of conflict between the sports program and the academic program. And if athletics came before, if it was a truly a student athlete situation, 
and it was academics before athletics, you wouldn't have to get rid of athletics. You wouldn't have to forego profitability on athletics. People will still watch college football, but you can loosen some of the restrictions to permit people to learn in the academic environment the way that they're supposed to, which would give you a lot stronger an argument that these individuals are not employees. Okay, so let's go back to the Van Skyke case. And I think the Van Skyke case, for those who are not deeply immersed in this particular issue, and you read a headline that the NCAA or the NCAA's lawyers are comparing college athletes to, to prisoners and saying that college athletes are deserving of the same treatment that prisoners do under, at least under FLSA. And the NCAA has responded in the past, not saying that they are like prisoners. We're just saying that the legal test that has been applied to prisoners should also be applied to college athletes. And there's a question about whether that's a distinction with a difference or not. But but clearly now in front of the Third Circuit, we had a federal judge, at least one, there may have been others saying I wasn't in the courtroom, but at least one saying that it's a ridiculous comparison. Paul or Mike, can you talk a little bit about, for those who don't know, just briefly what the Van Skyke case is, why and how the NCAA has relied on it, and then why you have long said, and now a federal judge has said, that it is a ridiculous or offensive comparison. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that if you don't mind, Mike. Just very briefly. So as Mike will tell you, because he's been doing labor and employment longer than I have, in every situation where someone alleges that they are an employee that deserves to be paid under the FLS, a test is applied and discoveries applied to that test to determine whether or not they meet a test. The only exception to that is prison labor, because for those who are familiar with historically 13th Amendment, there's the slavery exception carve out that says that as a punishment for crime, a prisoner can be made to do involuntary servitude. Okay. That's the only situation where a test doesn't apply because courts have said, and Van Skyke v. Peters is the leading case that says this, that regardless of what a test might say, a test might say that a prisoner actually meets the standard, because there's a specific carve out in the Constitution saying you can be made to do involuntary servitude, then we're not going to let you go on with this case. So the case can be dismissed without a test. What the NCAA has done since the very beginning, and I was involved in the first case, Burger v. NCAA, is argue that their amateurism rules, which are not codified in any federal law, simply what they decide to make up, self-serving and self-defined, deserve the same deference and preclusive effect as a 13th Amendment slavery exception. So when they say they're not comparing them to prisoners, the problem with that is that there is no other example in American jurisprudence where a test isn't applied. So if there's one situation you're saying we should be treated like that, by my definition, and I think by most people's definition, that's a comparison. So there's no nuance to it. It's just that they're saying that amateurism should have the same effect. They got away with it in Berger for reasons that I still can't explain. I don't think actually was the reason the issue was really properly raised in Dawson. I was not counsel in Dawson. They lost the issue in Livers. And then, of course, after Livers, you have the Alston decision, which makes it crystal clear that amateurism, frankly, is not a thing, that you can't exempt yourself from any federal law by yelling amateurism. And so where we are now, I think, and it was Judge McKee's the one who made the comment about it being ridiculous. He actually said it twice. Interesting, if you listen to the audio, you can actually hear Judge Restrepo chime in, yeah, after the first time that, that Judge McKee says is ridiculous. I think it's pretty clear that there is no other example for this. And what they've tried to do in the past is they've tried to say, oh, but Vance Kaike has been used in other cases. 
But as Mike knows, because he, he briefed this and I briefed this as well in, in Livers, those other cases were not cases about dismissal. It was These were cases where Van Skyke was cited for broad propositions about the FLSA being the broadest definition of employee status you know, in, in federal law, because Van Skyke for years was the highest level Seventh Circuit decision about the FLSA at all. So Seventh Circuit cases would cite Van Skyke for other propositions completely unrelated to motion dismiss. So they've tried to conflate those things, right, in my humble opinion, disingenuously, to confuse people who aren't able to distinguish easily. But the, it, it is very base. Their argument is don't apply a test here. And the only example we can give you of a test not being applied is Van Skyke v. Peters and that slavery exception. If they're if you're right and Van Skyke doesn't apply and then one of the multi-factor tests does apply and then you've argued that the expectation of compensation is not a particularly compelling factor, maybe shouldn't apply at all, given that they've agreed to not pay the athletes. At that point, what do you, what is the what does the NCAA have left to argue <laughs> at that point? Is it that this is just a the economic reality is that these are students, not not employees? Or this is I thought it was fascinating in the arguments where the NCAA's lawyers said they should go to Congress. And again, I wasn't there. I couldn't see a reaction. But Mike, I can only imagine you recoiled and said, we should go to Congress. You're the ones who are asking for special treatment under the law, which you answered with. But yeah, what else, at that point, what does the NCAA have left if they... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, look, they've been trying to rely basically from a public opinion perspective on what might be someone's natural intuition to say to themselves... These are kids playing sports. They can't be employees. They shouldn't be paid. That doesn't find weight anymore, at least in the legal context, right? After Austin, after Livers, after the case was decided in Johnson, and we think the case will be decided the same way at the Third Circuit, they're not left with an immediate legal challenge to the claim that these individuals are not employees. They're going to have to litigate on the merits of whether or not these individuals are sufficiently controlled and whether or not their academics are sufficiently compromised to qualify them as employees. We believe that the evidence is going to be very strongly in favor of these individuals. And we think the NCAA knows that, which is why they've refused steadfastly to litigate that issue and tried every trick in the book to get out of the litigation. And why, as, as you pointed out, or they have made many requests to Congress to pass legislation absolving themselves for responsibility for these violations of various laws, including the FLSA. So what do they have left? I don't even know that they have a Hail Mary, to be honest with you. What they have left is the ability to be introspective and change the regime and pay the people who they've treated as employees the minimum wage that they are owed for the statutory period for which they are owed, and and change the way that they do business. Now, that's really what they're left with, in our view. Yeah, and because again, I get always take it back to the notion of the movie Philadelphia with Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks. It's in the, the whole thing explained to me like I'm a six year old, right? Or I think it was six, maybe eight or six. Whatever. Point is, what's your story essentially? Our story is simple. It, it's simple, especially again when you compare it to the fact that we know there are other kids on campus who are hourly employees. So we have a benchmark. And so I think what they're left with is, it, it, can they make a case? And I think they know they probably can't. 
that to, to a jury or to a judge, to the court of public opinion, once people actually know that our case is about comparing to work study, which I think a lot of people in the court and the public don't know, that, yeah, we know the kid's selling popcorn. That's an employee, an hourly employee. But somehow, in some remarkable world, the student athlete is less controlled, has less restrictions placed upon his or her ability to pursue academics than the kid selling popcorn. It's just something that's not really believable. I will tell you, discovery is going to be interesting because, you know, what coach or athletic director is going to want to be, to answer that question in deposition, understanding what the allegations are in the complaint and the comparison to work-study students, on what basis do you suggest that your quarterback is not an employee understanding that the kid selling popcorn at the games is? Who's going to want to take the position Oh, yeah, I still maintain that the quarterback is not, but the kid selling popcorn, I know that he is. Who's going to want to do that? And so I think that's the reason why you see this fight. That's the reason why I don't hold out the possibility that they may not try to appeal what I think will be a ruling against them here, the Third Circuit, to the Supreme Court, because I think their Hail Mary legally is to not have a test applied. And even it's the only thing you think about it. Why would someone make an argument that legally is is dubious, to say the least? Like I said, how they won in Burger, I'm not going to get into that because that's just, that's a whole different, I think it was a different world where amateurism was just considered to be the rule of the, of the world anyway, regardless. But legal, the comparison of Vance, the Vance Skyke case clearly doesn't apply legally. And then, of course, there's the other implications that are in terms of it. This week, we're seeing a Texas Tech basketball coach being roasted for using a Bible verse about masters and slaves. Yet the NCAA has made a comparison that's, not that far off and maybe and arguably is far worse because you actually can say, especially with March Madness coming up and a large number of black athletes who are going to be starring in March Madness and March Madness makes the NCAA a billion dollars a year alone, that you have these kids who are providing free labor to benefit the schools. It looks bad, right? And But they're actually making an argument that can be compared to that. So you say to yourself, why would someone do something that is clearly close to touching a third rail? And the only way, the only explanation I can come up with is because they understand that if they can't win that argument, they don't have an argument. One, one last quick question on Johnson, then we'll turn over to turn to Flores for a second. But NIL came up a bit in the oral argument and part of what the NCAA argued is that's not payment coming from the schools, that's payment coming from third parties. And Mike, you had a interesting response to that. Can you just talk about how you guys see the NIL world, maybe making your argument even stronger? Just so for one, the NCAA's argument beyond Van Skyke, or maybe in conjunction with it, is that there's no compensation bargain, right? And as Paul outlined before, we don't think that's a valid legal argument. We also don't think it's a valid factual argument. And the NIL is a good example of where individuals now in student athletics are getting paid and they're getting paid because of the skills that they can that they can set forth on whatever field or rank that they play sports on and for the NCAA to try to disassociate itself from that and even more ridiculously for the schools to try to disassociate themselves from that given all the reporting that's occurred with respect to their direct involvement in that is just silly and when you've got Nick Saban shooting bows at his at his Big 12 rivals for buying their teams, right? You've got coaches criticizing other coaches for buying their teams through NIL deals. And then the NCAA wants to set back and say, we have nothing to do with this. It's just completely ridiculous. And that's not really, hasn't been fleshed out in the case yet because those 
rules are evolving and this complaint was initially filed before they all went into effect. But it's just very disingenuous for the NCAA and what I think we put in our brief to say, at first, an amateur is someone that's not getting paid. And now an amateur is someone that's getting paid, but just not by us. And for that distinction to be made in an effort to defend itself against these claims, I think is a really disingenuous position to take. Yeah. And one other thing, just slightly, just also, just so folks understand if if they haven't read our complaint, it's also always been the case that there were student athletes who were considered amateurs. and And for those who can't see the video, I did use air quotes for that, who were being paid and the NCAA was okay with it. The non-revenue Olympic sports, the Olympic gold grant program, you could make money if you either participated in training programs with the U.S. Olympic Committee or if you won medals. So that Katie Ledecky was considered an amateur, even though she'd made probably well over $100,000 for meddling at the Olympics. So you've always had exceptions in that regard. You had exceptions for tennis players. There's exceptions for tennis players that allow them to be paid. And of course, one of the more interesting ones is that the NCAA allows for athletes to be paid for sports camps where they're basically just brand ambassadors for the university. They, so they're paid as work-study students if they work as a ref at a sports camp. So it's never been the case, and of course, Judge Willikin talked about this to some extent in O'Bannon, it's never been the case that there was some hard, fast rule that in order to be a quote-unquote amateur, which again, is not codified in any law, it's just made up anyway, that you could not be paid. It's just that they had a rule that they weren't going to pay for the actual work that produces the vast amount of value for the universities. They would pay for other things. NIL is just the latest version and the mo- maybe the more extreme version because you see all these schools with collectives. And even though the NCAA is trying to allegedly crack down on that, we'll see how that goes. Where, like Mike said, it's funny because my dad went to University of Texas. So we like to make fun of Jimbo Fisher at a with, you know, who Nick Saban pointed out was, yeah, buying class. And that video, the recruiter for AM telling the kids when they were out there at Kyle Field, all those guys up there in the, the boxes, they're going to be giving you a bag of money. Yeah, it's the whole thing has always been a sham. And it also points to the fact of how much money there is out there and how little we actually are seeking. And it will be, obviously, there's a lot still to unfold, not just in the Johnson case, but then the potential impact that might have or even if it doesn't have on the NLRA actions, on the underlying antitrust cases, on the activity at the state level and the federal level. So there's a lot still to come. I imagine there's, I'll- oh, yeah, One ahead. last thing, I'll make it very quick because I know you're about to go to talk about Flores with Mike. The other thing you mentioned, the idea of going to Congress. Here's something else I think you need to remember. The NCAA, and the NIL is a perfect example of this. The NCAA has always has done the whole chicken little thing on several issues. Talking about, oh, this is going to ha- this happens and this will happen. If, of course, they used to do an antitrust world. If they're paid anything, then the market for, NCAA, for NCAA sports will go away because the whole market is based on the notion of them not being paid, going back to that border regions dicta, right? So, really, the, at the end of the day, and then Mike's right when he said that they're the ones that I think he made a comment, they're the ones that need to go to Congress, right? Because at the end of the day, Congress shouldn't be intervening in something that hasn't proven to be true. And almost everything the NCAA has ever said about what would happen if things changed has proven not to be true. If there's a world where we prevail in our case and the student athletes are treated as we as they should be as hourly employees, and if something specific to them that's not a that's not an issue for work study students, because again, work study's been there for years, hasn't been a problem. If there's something specific to student athletes that makes treating them as work like work study students somewhat different or complicated, 
then at that point, once they have evidence and they have a basis to go and look for a legislative remedy. And by the way, they might actually have goodwill to get Congress to actually step in because they'll be actually being fair and reasonable to not just the kids, but again, I mentioned earlier, their parents won't have to be sending the kids money on the weekends. They have it backwards. It's the whole process here they have backwards. They've been employees for years. You just haven't paid them. And once they are employees, if we prevail, which I think we will, then if there are any complicating factors that aren't covered by work study, that's when you go to Congress. Very well said. And now we will quickly shift as Mike, in addition to working on the Johnson case, is also representing Brian Flores in his race discrimination suit against the NFL. And there was a decision in the district court earlier this week or last week, depending on when you're listening to this, that was a split decision. Some of the charges were will be forced arbitration. Others will not, and we'll go forward in federal court. Mike, just like I asked you with the Johnson case oral argument, but here we actually have a decision. What's just your general reaction to how the court decided those issues? We opposed we opposed any of the claims going to arbitration on a variety of bases, but primarily, I would say the thrust of the argument was that in the very first instance, Roger Goodell is the individual who's responsible for overseeing the arbitration of any claims that are subject to arbitration. And within an hour of us filing the Flores lawsuit, the NFL, through its spokesperson who reports to Roger Goodell, put out a statement saying that it was without merit. Probably didn't have enough time to even read it before putting that statement out. And so our argument all along has been that any claims that are compelled to Roger Goodell are necessarily going to be compelled to a kangaroo court, where the person overseeing and perhaps even deciding the outcome of the claims is unquestionably biased because not only has the NFL already articulated that it believes it has the claim, the claims have no merit, but Roger Goodell is paid by the very individuals who he is going to be asked to find against in connection with these claims. So in that sense, we're disappointed that any claims got compelled to arbitration. But I think the much bigger takeaway and probably where I should have started this are the claims that did not get compelled to arbitration. And those are Coach Flores' claims against the Denver Broncos for a failure to hire, against the New York Giants for a failure to hire, and against the Houston Texans for a failure to hire and retaliation. And more importantly, from a holistic perspective, Mr. Flores' claims, his class allegation claims against the NFL that the NFL system systematically discriminates against Black individuals when it comes to coordinator positions, when it comes to head coaching positions, when it comes to office executive positions, et cetera, those claims brought by Mr. Flores are all going to be litigated in court under the watchful eye of the public. And we are going to be able to take, in connection with those claims, all of the discovery that really is going to be involved in this case, because each incidence of a hiring or a firing or a pay decision, et cetera, each of those decisions are all a part of establishing a league-wide bias against Black individuals with respect to these positions. And so the upshot, as I think has been widely reported is that this ultimately was a successful endeavor for us to get those claims litigated in court. And we're still deciding what to do with respect to the other claims, but we've got a pathway forward here to make real change 
in the public eye in the NFL when it comes to its treatment of, of Black coaches and executives. And we're looking forward to doing that. And you mentioned the other claims from the NFL's perspective and the team's perspective. This ties in a little bit to what we were talking about with the interlocutory appeal in Johnson. Do you expect the NFL will appeal? And there's a question whether they have a right to appeal this, but what's your expectation on that? So the NFL does have a right to appeal the portions of the decision that they lost. A strange quirk in the Federal Arbitration Act, which is another I think knock against arbitration generally is that if you're an employer who has lost a motion to compel arbitration, you have the right to appeal that decision before, I shouldn't say before, you have the right to appeal that decision immediately. And so you don't have to wait until the trial concludes to appeal that decision. Whereas if you're on the other side of it and you're an employee who gets compelled to arbitration, you actually have to go through the entire arbitration process before you can appeal the initial decision compelling you there to begin with. There are requests that employees can make to seek certification for an interlocutory appeal. And so we're exploring all of our options there. We don't know yet whether the NFL is going to appeal. The judge has set a date for an initial conference in the case. We are required to confer with the NFL in advance of that with respect to various scheduling issues. And I suspect that between now and then, they'll make their intentions known. But I don't at this moment know whether or not they intend to appeal and that's March 24th, I think, that pretrial conference. And it, for the cases that do go forward, assuming they do go forward in arbitration, is it your expectation that Roger Goodell will hear those cases or will designate it to someone else? The NFL's arbitration policy is a bit convoluted. So the first step pursuant to the policy is that Roger Goodell has to make a decision in his sole discretion as to whether or not the claims are football-related or not football-related. And if he decides that they're football-related, then either he or someone that he designates will hear those claims. If he decides that they're not football-related, then the process permits him, but arguably doesn't require him, to submit those claims to an arbitration association in certain circumstances, JAMS, and in certain circumstances, AAA. And so he, in the first instance, is going to retain complete discretion ultimately over who hears these claims. And we have not, he has not, I think intentionally, frankly, if you read the briefing in the case, the NFL avoided a lot of issues, one of which was if this case goes to arbitration, who do they anticipate hearing it? And I think they did that on purpose. They have not yet informed us as to how they view a football-related versus not football-related issue, and ultimately who will end up hearing the claims. But Roger Goodell will have a heavy hand regardless in the process. And the judge made it clear that even though she didn't believe that the potential bias of the commissioner was sufficient grounds to avoid arbitration, left the door open that you could still try to vacate the award if you believe that it was biased or an unfair process. But let's, again, play this forward and assume that there is no appeal settlement chances on this one. As I understand it, two of the coaches are still coaching in the NFL. One is coaching in the USFL. I don't know if that impacts the potential settlement, but do you foresee any possible settlement? I know there'll be some discussions before that pretrial conference, but what's your expectation in terms of possible settlement? Well, there's a couple of issues. I go back to when we initially filed the case. Because, and this is laid out in our initial complaint, 
But when we initially filed the case, we had approached the NFL about trying to mediate the disputes, not only the specific disputes, but much more importantly, the systemic problems that we outlined in the complaint, and to mediate those with a third-party mediator to seek a resolution that would ultimately require the NFL to be accountable for whatever agreement we came to, and that there would be some oversight in terms of its implementation of various changes that we are seeking for the NFL to make. The NFL refused our offer to mediate, which indicates indicated, at least at the time, and they've not come back to us on that, that they just simply don't have the desire to make the real change and to be held accountable for that change through actual oversight to ensure that it takes place. So again, any case can resolve at any time, but the I think what makes this case different than maybe your average run-of-the-mill case is that if we're to resolve this case, it's not going to be a resolution of the specific claims of three individual coaches and some sort of remedy for them for their specific individual experiences. All three of our clients have filed this case and are involved in this case because they want to change the way that the NFL does business when it comes to race in decision-making processes. And so until the NFL is prepared to use the term again, be introspective rather than just automatically defensive, I don't see a high likelihood that this case is going to resolve. Although I certainly hope that I'm wrong about that because a resolution would serve the NFL and would serve the public interest and it would serve communities of color across the country. Hold out hope, but we see nothing from the NFL to indicate that they're prepared to take a hard look at what their practices have caused. So introspection hoped for, but litigation and arbitration more likely at this point. You've got to litigate until you don't, right? Our goal is going to just be to continue to, to use the tools at our disposal to force the change. If they get to the point where they're will, willing to do it cooperatively with us, then we're all ears. We're always all ears. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Paul. This has been really insightful. I appreciate the time and being so generous with your thoughts and your expertise. And obviously a lot of potentially systemic changes coming as courts start to to paraphrase the judge in the Flores case. The, these cases are, are shining an unflattering spotlight on, on the employment practices of the NFL and potentially of the NCAA as well. So a lot of change potentially on the horizon. And I appreciate you taking the time, both of you to break it down and give us your insights. And I look forward to having you back as we get closer either to more introspection or further down the litigation path. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give it five stars. And thank you to my sponsors, the Tulane Center for Sport and RitVest. It's been a while. Do you know where your RitVest is? See you next time between the lines.